Welcome to Energy Talks, a regular podcast series with expert discussions on topics related to power system testing, data management, and cybersecurity in the power industry. My name is Scott Williams from the podcast team at Omicron. Hello, everyone. This is the fifth episode of our special Energy Talks mini-series called Cybersecurity and the Power Grid, in which we provide you with a 360-degree view of how power grids can best safeguard their infrastructures from cyber attacks. In this episode, Omicron cybersecurity expert Andreas Kalian will be your host, and a special guest will join him to discuss the question, can power grid operators trust their manufacturers? So without further delay, welcome, Andreas, and thank you for hosting this episode. Thank you, Scott. It's a pleasure to do this here for the first time. And hello and uh, welcome from my side to this fifth episode in our Energy Talk Cybersecurity mini-series. My name is Andreas Kian and I will be your host for this episode. I'm responsible for the business area Power Utility Communication at Omicron. I'm also responsible for the product manager of our cybersecurity products. Joining me for this episode is Sarah Flux, renowned Chief Technology Officer at Admeritia co-founder of the very famous Secure PLC coding project and board member and working group convener at the International Society of Automation, ISA. So she's a convener of um, a standard in the 62403 standard series and a lot of other things. Very great to have you here. Great. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. So what can you expect from this episode? Sarah and I are going to discuss several interesting topics today. Um, First of them is, what is the EU Cyber Resilience Act and how does it help to secure the power grid and other critical infrastructures? Then we have a very important topic in the CRA is security certificates for products, especially OT devices. How do they work and do they work? And the next uh, topic then in the CRA is also SBOM. So software bill of materials, it's a buzzword that has been around for maybe, I don't know, a bit more than a year or two. And what are these S-bombs and will they really help um, utility operators, the end use? And we will try to address everything from the perspective of an OT security officer at the power utility. So it is a fictional man, let's call him Michael, and he's an IT security officer CISO responsible for also the OT security in a power utility in Europe. First of all, ICL is responsible if that power utility will be hacked. The utility will then be in the public because of that successful intrusion. And it's Michael's responsibility to make that as difficult as possible. Other responsibilities of Michael are compliance to the local regulations based on the country that Michael lives in. And most of these regulations are risk-based. So it's always the goal to improve the maturity level there. So it's a lot of planning and project work to improve the security level of his organization. Michael is also overseeing incident response, continuously monitoring the network for threats and a lot of important other topics and also socially difficult topics like mediating between IT and OT colleagues, because there are so many differences in the requirements there. And Michael is not the only IT security officer struggling with these problems. 
And because of this, we would like to give you some insight today and we hope that we can help you there a bit. So Sarah, how realistic do you see the threat of cyber attacks on the power grid in Europe? I don't know when this episode is going live, but when we record it, I think we can't go around talking about the power grid attacks that were made public in Denmark. I would imagine Michael would be a bit worried about what published from Denmark because they had the attacks, I believe, were in May this year, but the Danish sector search published, uh, I think November 15th or 16th, that there was a fairly recent, really big attack on power grid in Denmark. They even said it was the biggest to date, a big round of attacks on power grid. And I think the major takeaway for me was it didn't really happen much because they were well prepared. So there was no, the users and the power grid customers didn't notice anything. But the report also said Denmark is constantly under attack. So we constantly see these attacks. And while it's unusual that we see so many concurrent attacks against critical infrastructure, they are there all the time. And of course, it's also comforting to know that they were prepared and that you can do something against that. And you're not just a victim, but you can actually, if, if you actually have certain measures in place, then you can survive such an attack without even your customers knowing about that. Yeah, I, I also found it quite interesting because this is one of the first attacks on critical infrastructure, which was really prevented by detection. Right, yes. Detection, right? And I just imagine like these analysts, they are sitting suddenly seeing the IP addresses of a known threat actor. Their pulse must have really gone up a lot in that moment. Yeah, so I think it's a really great example to say, okay, it is realistic. We do see cyber attacks. Uh, Power Grid provide us this very, very good example from Denmark. But it doesn't mean that the users and the customers always feel the impact. And that's a good thing. But yeah. well, it doesn't mean that there are no attacks. There are these attacks and critical infrastructure to see them. But you can do something about it. And, and have deep respect of these people from Sector Third. Who, who managed to detect this and to avoid larger damage by reacting so quickly. So Absolutely. And also much respect for transparency so that they published so many details about that and thus hopefully have helped others that may experience the same. So yeah, that really was a good a good case study how to handle such like things. I was at the conference in Copenhagen on like the, the day when they published the report and then they also had a, a talk there. And then there was a question from the audience, can you share more information? And the simple answer was no. Yeah, it is a lot of, I think it's also way more information than we usually get. I mean, since the public didn't notice any impact on power supply and the attack was already back in May, they would have easily gotten away with not publishing anything at all. So from that point of view, I think we can be grateful that the report is there as detailed as it is. Yeah, so our friend Michael who's the uh, responsible for OT security, Michael needs to ensure compliance with a lot of different like regulations and standards by the EU or the local laws of, of his government. Uh, this surely alleviates him some of his worries. Do you agree? Well, on one hand, yes, because of course, no standard reinvents cybersecurity. So if you follow any of them, doesn't really matter which one you're very likely to have a few basics in place. At least if you 
really try to implement them and not just do it for the compliance and for the certificate on the wall. It's easy to get a certificate without getting good cybersecurity. But that taking aside, I mean, if you really try to fulfill them, then some of the basics you will have in place. So you probably have something like a bit of visibility into your network. You probably know what you have. You probably have backups. You probably, you may even have intrusion detection that prevented um, the attack that we've seen in Denmark. And I mean, that said, if you have intrusion detection and prevention, you also need somebody monitoring all these alarms and doing something about that. But anyway, you may have that in place so that definitely alleviates some of his worries. But the problem is, of course, that as an operator, you are always also dependent on the components that you operate and on the security characteristics these have. So it's a bit like someone laid you a cuckoo's egg into your nest, uh, which you can't control. You don't know what kind of bird is coming out of it, security-wise, what kind of cybersecurity bird is coming out of it. I mean, in the Denmark example, to stay there for a while, it was also a vulnerability in a firewall that was exploited to get into the network. So in that example, the operator may have done everything right, but they have this firewall and the firewall has a vulnerability and you cannot fix vulnerabilities yourself. You're dependent on the manufacturer for that one. You can have a good patch management process in place and you can monitor if there are any patches for vulnerabilities, but detecting that there is a vulnerability and fixing it, that's the responsibility of the manufacturer. Yeah, so that firewall is a good topic now. So it, it brings us to the EU Cyber Resilience Act, which should improve the situation for Michael a bit. What is this EU Cyber Resilience Act? I think if it becomes reality, it really is a milestone because it's the first time that there is a real market entry barrier calling for cybersecurity. So that means if manufacturers of certain products don't have certain cybersecurity measures in place, they're not allowed to put their products on the European market. And that really is unique. That is unique in Europe. We didn't have anything like that before the CRA, and we don't have anything like that at present. But it's also pretty unique globally. So US doesn't have anything like that, for example, at least not in this width across all sectors and across many products. So it's not just a certificate, it's actually a market entry barrier. That's a, that's a good term. If a certificate is mandatory for putting a project in place, that's a market entry barrier. It really means, I mean, we know it from other CE markings. What the CRA does is it expands the existing concept of the CE marking to cybersecurity. And the CE marking is a really successful concept that we have for primarily safety-relevant products. So, for example, children's toys or pressure vessels, or uh, many people know it from sunglasses, right? So if you have, don't have the CE sign on your sunglasses, then they you can't be sure that they really protect your eyes from UV rays. And now the new thing is that a new group of products also requires a CE marking, and these products with digital elements. And that for in order to obtain that CE marking, these products need to meet not, for example, safety standards for not having any chemical or any toxic materials in children's toys, but these products with digital elements need to fulfill certain cybersecurity requirements. So I only know the CE marking as something that you can label yourself without an external body checking it. 
uh, this would be something which needs to be checked by an external accredited lab or so. It depends. So there's different groups of products and depending on the criticality, there are different procedures for the CE marking. I think it's already the same for the existing CE marking. Depending on the criticality, you can self-declare or you have to check by an external authority. And so for OT, automation devices? The short answer is we don't know yet <laughs> because there is a draft that became public. EU Commission published it last year, a draft text for the Cyber Resilience Act. And there is an annex, I think it's annex three, that details the digital products that are in scope. And of course, and totally expectedly, that's one of the biggest points of discussion for manufacturers, but also between Parliament and Commission and the EU Council, because that, of course, the amount of products affected makes a huge difference. I mean, products with such elements is just a huge range of products. It can be so many things that fall below that. And at the same time, the... CE marking is part of the so-called new legislative framework. That is the, the framework that is used for the CE marking where a few boundary principles and foundational principles were defined for market entry barriers like the CE marking is because that is a pretty big thing to do if you can say, okay, if your product doesn't have certain requirements, doesn't meet certain requirements, you can't place it on the market. That really is a big impact on and big influence on European markets and on open competition. And that's why the EU is really very careful in deciding which products are affected. So it has to be risk-based, the risk uh, that the product may place at, maybe for end users must play a role in the decision if it's affected by the CE marking or not. And so it, there's really many criteria to do that carefully. And the initial list and the initial draft that the EU Commission published last year in Annex 3 was really long, uh, so a really long list of critical products that would fall under the CE marking. And now that the draft is being debated, it's pretty sure that this list is getting substantially shortened. So it's not published yet and we really don't know what is cut out, but we can say certainly there will be things cut out. And in the initial draft, OT products were definitely in there. So IoT components were in there, but also industrial automation and control systems. That was the terminology from 62443 standards that was used in there. And they were also in there. And also components, the NIST 2 components. So components that are defined as critical components in the NIST 2 directives for the critical infrastructures, which could also be OT. Okay. We recently went through such a certification or a while ago, we achieved the certificate, the BSZ certificate of the German federal office for our intrusion detection system. It was an interesting process. There are also other certifications, the 62443 4-1 for the development process and 4-2, I think it is for the products. So there are several options for certifications around. There is also in France, there is the ANSSI a certification also, which is compatible to the German certificate of the federal office. Which of these certificates will win the race? Well, what do you think? Well, that's a good question. I mean, the difference between these existing certificates and the CE certificate is obviously you already said that, that to date the certificates are not mandatory. You can do that. So if you're 
a vendor who wants to raise trust in their products and want to say, okay, I, I did something about cybersecurity and I want to show my clients, you can get these certificates, but it's not mandatory. It's not a market entry barrier. The CE marking will be a market entry barrier. And the process for deciding what requirements become relevant for the CE marking and also what existing certification schemes, like the ones that you mentioned, is currently being started as developing so-called harmonized standards or harmonized norms, European norms. And these are norms that must be European norms, so EN norms, that fulfill the so-called presumption of conformity. So that means if a manufacturer fulfills these norms, he can be sure that is also conform with the CE and can get the CE marking based on these norms. So it's a pretty important decision to define these harmonized European norms. And the certificates that you mentioned, the BSI or the Competitive French certificates, are also currently standardized, or maybe they are already, I don't know what the exact status is, in, in European norm 17640, I think. And there are big hopes, and the German BSI is also working towards that, understandably, that this European norm could be one of the harmonized norms for the CRA. So we don't know that because standardization takes a long time and the process has just started and the timeline is really ambitious. Or people in standardization say that they got a timeline from the European Commission when the European Commission would like to have these European harmonized norms in place. And this timeline is, I think, beginning 2025 or 2026. And this really is an ambitious timeline for getting all these standards in place because so many products are affected. But yes, there's a good chance. And the German BSE, of course, is working towards that this certificate will be usable for the CE marking. In your article on Medium and on LinkedIn, you also mentioned SBOM as a measure to improve security, but also as a requirement for products to be certified like this. Could you explain what this SBOM term is? It's a rather new term. A couple of years ago, it didn't even exist. What is it? That's right. So an SBOM is a software bill of materials. So it could be translated as an ingredients list for a software product. So you say, okay, what ingredients does my software product have? What kind of libraries? other software products, uh, etc. in my software product. And that, of course, is matters because if you know what kind of software is in there, it makes it easier to determine, for example, if you're affected by vulnerabilities because you know what's in there. And we had, I think, good examples that also were the reason for the Houston now adopting the, the S-Bonds were the supply chain attacks that we've seen over the last years. Because, for example, in the SolarWinds or Log4j or, or texts like these, there were often vulnerabilities deeply buried in the software stack of big software products. And what we've seen then is really companies spending a lot of time trying to find out if that piece of low-level software, for example, the protocol stack or a library, is used in, is being used in their, in their software because that's not always that easy to find out. And if you have an SBOM, that is easier to find out. So it's easier to find out if you're affected by such low level software vulnerabilities, for example. So which role will SBOM play for our fictional CISO Michael in five years? Is he going to use it? <laughs> it probably depends if 
his manufacturers provided to him because that's something, I mean, the S-bomb is something that can't be done by the operator alone. <laughs> they have to get them from their manufacturers. But now that the S-bomb is increasingly being prescribed and now it's, it's even a requirement in the Cyber Security Resilience Act, then of course increases likelihood that it's going to be more widespread and more popular and being used. So it's going to be available likely for Mikey. And my question is always like, how would an end user make use of it? I think it's obvious if things like Log4J happen again, and you don't hear from your vendor if the vendor is affected or not, then you can at least look into the S-bomb if you find uh, Log4J mentioned somewhere, and then you can uh, assume the worst. I think that is that is uh, useful if there is a famous vulnerability that you can quickly check to assume the worst or to be hopefully relieved that it's not in the S-bomb. But would it be something that Michael would use in the daily work for risk management? I mean, for patch management, right? So that's what you said yeah, before. that's what I meant. Yeah, for, for risk management, I mean, it's a pretty low-level information, right? So if you're starting with, it's always a question how much details and visibility you can actually use in your daily work. So if you have an asset inventory and you already have pretty good information, pretty good visibility in what you what you have in your systems, and the question always is, the more mature you are in your cybersecurity program, in your risk assessment, the better you can use more detailed information. So I think an S-bomb is a bit like next level asset inventory of the future. So if you can really make use of all the information in asset inventory and you can make your risk-based decisions based on what's in your asset inventory, then the next level would be also making use of the decisions that are of the information that are in the S-bomb. So for example, the asset inventory you can use in your risk-based decisions for answering, okay, what kind of manufacturers do I want to buy products from? What kind mm -hmm. of features should they have? And then the S-bombs, you can go more into depth and say, okay, what kind of libraries do I or don't I want to use or stay post-risk? Do I want to use open source libraries or don't I want to use that? Do I want to use big question. I don't have any answer here. I just think if you open that now, we can probably talk on for years. And then open source is not equal to open source. If I do want to use open source, which ones? Which ones can I trust? If I were okay. to use, do I want to use standard libraries? How much do I want to rely on single manufacturers in, in my ASPOM stack? So all these kind of questions you can start addressing. But of course, these are not the first questions. If you aren't using the data you already have, Right. So it's not the first kind of thing an operator would use, probably, apart from pitch management. Yeah. I like the comparison to the ingredients list in, in food. If you buy processed food with a lot of ingredients, you need to be a real expert to judge if that's now like a good ingredient or is it a dangerous ingredient or not. Uh, and the opinion about these ingredients also changes all the time. That's right. And you can also really set your priorities on how deep you want to dive in. You can say, okay, I only look at the terms in ingredients that are printed fat because these can be things that I can be allergic against. So I only look at these and the rest, I don't care. Or maybe you want to restrict other things in your diet. You say, okay, I don't want to have any E numbers in my ingredients list. So I look for that. And as really, it really matters, depends on how much do you want to dive in, what your priorities are. 
but the SBOM at least gives you the chance to make these decisions and to make that more visible on a more detailed level. I'm involved in the vulnerability management process of our products and then the developers are needed to assess if a certain vulnerability plays a role for a product or not. So if you really deal with this level of detail, it's really complex. And I think every time it's the case that the developers are needed to assess if a certain vulnerability really punches through and poses a risk for the end customer. Because for example, the Linux kernel, if you just take out the latest LTS Linux kernel, which was released, say yesterday or so, it already has dozens and dozens of unpatched vulnerabilities. But obviously, almost all of them, or usually all of them, do not pose a risk for the end user because they cannot be exploited because the kernel module is maybe not used and so on. So it is a lot of detailed knowledge is required to be able to assess if a vulnerability of a component goes through to the end user. And I think it will be interesting to see how this develops over the next years. If, if really the end users need to deal with that and if they have the right tools to do that. That would be interesting to me. So if you're deciding if a vulnerability is relevant in your products, how much can you decide without knowing about the system context at the end users? Yeah. How much does that play a role or which information would you as a manufacturer like to get from your end users regarding that? Well, I can really answer this because we are doing this for our products. So we have products which are connected to the station bus and substations. And if you have like layer three access to the network, and that means a process even with normal privileges can open a TCP IP connection externally. So you don't even need elevate privileges for that. And you can already start creating a TCP IP connection on the network of the device if, you, if the device is under, or if the process is under your control. And then you can already issue switching commands, which could potentially cause a blackout. So that means even if you don't have elevated privileges, just the process is under your control as an attacker, you can already cause a blackout. And that is a huge impact already. If you have layer two network access and that needs elevated privileges, then you could, for example, send goose commands in the substation. And with this, you could create a confusion in the interlocking logic. And then it would even be possible, remotely possible, but possible that danger to life and limb could be caused by an attack. So you would ask your customers, okay, what kind of privileges or what kind of internet connection does a component have? Because that matters for assessing the risk. No, we already assume it is connected to the okay. bus in the substation. And we need to assume the worst. So we okay. cannot ask, I don't know, thousands of customers, are you really not connecting it? Actually, the purpose of the product is a testing device, for example. So it is connected to the station bus and therefore that's already clear. So yeah, okay, ask maybe was the wrong wording, but if you have an advisory, you can probably say, okay, if it is connected, then yes. it's, it's like that. If it's not connected, then yeah. so that you provide some guidance for them to adjust to their own circumstances. But the developers need to assess if that vulnerability can cause, like to bring a process under your control, or if that vulnerability can cause even elevated privileges of the compromised process on the device. So it's a really hard assessment for the developer to do, and it can cause the difference of a potential impact of a blackout or danger to life and limb. Yeah, but that also shows how much 
knowledge and how much context information you need in order to really process all that detailed information that you can get out of an S-bomb and out of a vulnerability node. And then it doesn't really help just to have all that information, but you really have to have the right people looking at it. I mean, it's the same with the ingredients list, right? So you have all that list of ingredients and most of them are not bad on their own. It really depends on what perspective you want to look at them. Right. So if you have 500 vulnerabilities in the product, that first of all, it doesn't tell you anything when yeah. it matters. You really need to have someone judging if that matters or not. Yeah, it's really a complex topic. And some people think S-Bomb will be the silver bullet for that. But unfortunately, it's way more complex than that. And I think the ingredient list in foods is, is a good comparison for that. I mean, it's the fundamental information that you need to have in order to solve the problem. So without an S-Bomb, you, you won't solve the supply chain problem, but it's not the silver bullet in, in, in terms of if you have it, it's solved. Is it? So it's necessary, but it's not sufficient. <laughs> okay, so as of today, what would be your assessment? Can Michael, as power grid operator, trust his manufacturers? Well, obviously, I don't know his manufacturers, but we put that aside. It's a good question. But at the same time, I don't like the finger pointing that is included in the question because I really don't think we achieve any progress in good cybersecurity by finding out who's responsible and pointing fingers. So the question behind that is always, okay, uh, can I trust you? Have you done your homework? The US CISA recently, or recently this year, I think, published something and said, okay, we, we need to stop passing the buck on cybersecurity. Okay. We need to stop finding the one that is responsible and everyone just raising their hands and saying, I can't do anything without a manufacturer. And the manufacturer saying, I can't do anything without my operator providing me information. And I mean, CISA's conclusion is that the manufacturers need to assume more responsibility and I can understand that. But we have the very special view on that in OT, I think, because in automation systems in OT, Engineering and the decisions about how a plant is being operated and how it is designed are simply not made by one manufacturer. The operator really has a big say in that. So engineering is so interdisciplinary and both operators and manufacturers are often are often involved in design. So maybe a better question than can I trust my manufacturer would be, what do I need to do so that they can do their homework? <laughs> so instead of asking, have you done your homework? You can say, okay, how can I enable the other party to do their homework? So for example, operators, it's so much easier for the manufacturers if you share your security goals, if you don't just throw security levels over the fence and say, you need to meet these five impossible requirements with your product and otherwise I don't buy it. It helps so much more if operators help manufacturers understand what they want to achieve security-wise. And on the other way, on the other way around, for manufacturers, I think we had that at the beginning, so it's kind of circle back to the beginning. Transparency helps so much. So if manufacturers don't just put on shiny lists of security features, but really share why they included certain features, which ones are included and why they are included, and also which ones they maybe didn't include for good reasons and why. I think trust is something that's only generated by transparent communication. Okay. So by on both sides, yeah, sharing my goals as an operator, sharing my intentions as a manufacturer. So aim for transparent communication and not for pretending to be perfect all the time. I can also see that now that uh, power grid operators and, and other critical OT infrastructure 
are more interested in how secure the devices are developed and in their vulnerabilities. A lot of manufacturers do something because somebody actually would be willing to pay money for that extra effort, of course. So it is both sides need to be interested in it. So previously the customers were not really interested and now that changed big time. And it's now about time that the manufacturers also like open up this and do something there. That's right. I agree. And opening up, I think that's so important. So really putting both parties at the same table and start talking about goals and not just about features that may be mandatory and any regulation that may come. And so in the remaining minutes, what do you think will come in the future? How do you foresee in light of the EU Cyber Resilience Act? How will this continue? What will happen in the next years? What do you think? I mean, first of all, the Cyber Resilience Act, I think, will now come fast. Next year, there are elections in Europe. And the commission has the intention to get the Cyber Resilience Act finalized before that, before the elections, so before June next year. And then there's going to be a two-year, or I think three-year, it's currently being debated period until it comes into effect. And the first thing that will definitely happen, we don't need a crystal ball for that, is the standardization landscape for defining cybersecurity requirements for products will mature. Big time. So that they, it, it has to. There's already so much time pressure in there to find harmonized norms. So to look into existing standards and decide which ones will make the race for the EU Cyber Resilience Act. So that means that really some standards will become tremendously more important and others won't. So the race will be decided within the next two or three years. And that will also mean that new standards may emerge in gaps where there aren't any yet. And that really means that the entire landscape of talking about a product cybersecurity, defining what a product cybersecurity means, will really make a big leap forward. I don't believe it is going to be difficult in the beginning because there's so much time pressure on the standardization and there's so much time pressure to produce something quickly. And always, if you produce standards quickly, they will have problems. There will be problems. There will be problems to implement them. There will be problems with say, okay, that's over the top or it's not enough or whatever, but at least we will quickly start that process. And I think that by its own is progress. Thank you so much, Sarah, for being in our podcast. It was a very interesting discussion with you. I really enjoyed it. Great to have you here. Me too. Thanks for having me. And also, thank you so much, Scott, for allowing me to host this episode here. And with that, I hand back to you, Scott. Goodbye. Thank you, Andreas. And a big thanks to our audience for listening to Energy Talks. We always welcome your questions and feedback. Simply send us an email to podcast at omicronenergy.com. Omicron has several years of experience in power system testing, data management, and cybersecurity in the power industry and offers you the matching solution for your application. For more information, be sure to visit our website at omicronenergy.com. Please join us to listen to the next episode of Energy Talks. Goodbye for now, everyone.